It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello. And we have the man of the hour who, unlike David's voice, is probably not cracking at this point, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. Welcome. This is a program about resistance toward victory. For the past week and a half, I've been walking a picket as a member of the Writers Guild of America. That's because we're on strike. Some of you might be surprised to know that not all Hollywood writers are rich. It has always been a precarious profession, but now changes in technology and how the major studios and streamers do business has made it hard for many of the writers who create and develop your favorite TV shows and movies to even make a living. This dilemma is emblematic of the issues facing so many other industries across the country, namely the gigification of the American workforce, where one man, the CEO of Time Warner, David Zaslov, makes an annual salary of $250 million a year. His salary alone would be enough to pay 10,000 writers. So we've invited the former president of the WGA West, David Goodman, onto the program. David is not only a writer of many of your favorite TV shows, including Family Guy, Star Trek Enterprise, and American Dad, but he's also co-chair of the committee representing the writers in their negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. We will look forward to getting the inside scoop on everything that's going on with the current writer strike. After that, we'll welcome back UC Berkeley Anthropology PhD candidates and library champions Sandra Asagora and Jesus Gutierrez. Our regular listeners will remember their campaign to save the UC Berkeley Anthropology Library from closure. UC Berkeley's reputation as a bastion of progressive ideals belies decades of disinvestment, corporatization, and regressive policies that have cut the heart out of one of America's oldest public universities. Closing the Anthropology Library is just one way in which University of California leadership has abandoned their students, faculty, and their other stakeholders. So we look forward to speaking about the ongoing struggle at Berkeley. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, why am I marching around Disney for four hours a day? Feldo? David Goodman has written for over 20 television series. His best-known work is as head writer and executive producer on Family Guy. He was the president of the Writers Guild of America West from 2017 to 2021. In that capacity, Mr. Goodman led the Guild in a campaign to force the Hollywood talent agencies into adopting a new code of conduct to better serve the needs of their writers. And today he serves as co-chair of the WGA Negotiating Committee in their strike against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, David Goodman. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome indeed, Mr. Goodman. This is uh, unabashedly an affirmative answer to the question that unions have asked for decades. Whose side are you on? And we're on your side. I'm a member of the SAG-AFTRA union, have been for many years. I know what those unions have done for artists, people who get on TV and radio and produce a lot of profits for their TV and radio stations. So welcome again. And I want to open this by providing a a frame of reference. You're dealing with an industry that pays some of its executives a lot of money. One of them received last year, reportedly, a pay package worth $250 million. That is two and a half times more than what Tim Cook, 
the CEO of the most profitable corporation in the world, Apple, received. So this is where it all starts out, the double standard, the inequity. And I want to hand this part of the program over to Steve Scorvan, because Steve is very much part of it. He's been involved in the picketing and the demonstrating and the public information. And let our listeners know that a lot of those programs that they watch on TV or listen to on the radio all over the country are written by the people who are on the picket lines and are pretty mercilessly exploited by the corporate titans that rake off the profits. Why don't you take it from here, Steve? Yeah, thanks, Ralph. David, David and I have known each other for a long time, probably 15 years since the previous strike from 2007-2008, which was really an important strike for the writers to get jurisdiction over what they at that time they called new media. It was essentially the internet. And we knew that if you don't get your foot in there at the beginning, then you never get it back. Why are we striking today, David? Why am I walking for four <laughs> hours around the Disney right. studios on strike carrying a sign? First, let me just say it's a pleasure to be here and pleasure to be talking to you and, and to Ralph Nader, one of my heroes. But just speaking to the specific situation, it's, it's very similar in a broad sense to what happened in 2007. We saw a future back then of streaming television, which didn't exist then. There was no streaming shows back then, streaming movies, that Netflix was a, a DVD library. But we knew that if we didn't fight for that coverage then, we were looking at a very bleak future for writers who would be, as to use Mr. Nader's analogy, ruthlessly exploited, not analogy of term. And now we're looking at a future in this new streaming model where writers aren't going to earn enough to stay writers, that these companies that we work for are spending billions of dollars, making billions of dollars on the product that we create. And writers currently, many of them, can't afford to pay their rent, can't afford to live in the cities where they're required to work, need to take second jobs. Now, again, that's a very familiar situation in labor across this country. And what we're saying is if these companies are profitable, if, as you stated, that the CEOs are, are making these pay packages that, frankly, are more than what we're asking for every writer to be paid in our package, literally, over a three-year contract, we need to fight. And one of the unfortunate products of capitalism is that a union at some point has to exercise its power to get what it not just what it wants, but what it needs for its members. And that's why we're on strike. Before we get into the details with Steve, tell us the names of these companies. They're household names, and they've got a trade association that camouflages their logo. What are some of the companies that are trying to squeeze more or not provide adequate livelihoods for the writers without whom they wouldn't be able to sell their their entertainment, documentaries, fiction, nonfiction? Well, there's Netflix, there's Apple, there's Universal, Comcast, Paramount, Sony, Amazon. And what we're sort of seeing also is these sort of new players in the business, which is Disney, obviously, is a legacy company, these sort of companies that always produce product, Disney, Universal, Paramount, and now these tech companies, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, which were traditionally not 
in this entertainment business, but now are, and all of them are sort of squeezing profits from labor. They're, you know, they're kowtowing to Wall Street. They have to show profit growth, not just profit, but profit growth. And that always seems to fall on the backs of the labor that produces the products they make. So David, the climate seems different from 15 years ago in that 15 years ago, it seemed like the Writers Guild was alone because we always sort of have to be the bad guys in the economic ecosystem of the entertainment world. Why don't you describe that ecosystem and the other entertainment unions and our relationship to them? Right. Well, I mean, historically, I mean, it is history. There are difficulties between the labor unions that the companies helped engender, that the companies saw it in their best interest to divide labor, to characterize the Writers Guild as crazy, as not being realistic, as being childish, literally, that those are terms that were used to describe a union that has always really stood up and fought for its members. And, and it divided us from our other unions in this business. And that has changed. And the reason that has changed is now across the board, the membership of those other unions are feeling squeezed. It's not just writers who are being squeezed, actors and directors and the crew people and the craftspeople and the Teamsters. And the Teamsters have stood up and are, are standing with us in an amazing way. And I think that's a function of how life in America has changed. And, and so now that the fact that the Guild is willing to stand up and to fight the other members of their unions and those leaderships of those unions recognize that the Writers Guild is the tip of the spear, that we are, that our fight is their fight, and that whatever we get is going to help them improve their contracts and their lives. So that's how it's changed. But really, historically, the AMPTP, this this organization that represents the companies in their negotiations, did a really effective job of dividing labor and, you know, in, in most other businesses, the unions would be all be negotiating with one company. And in Hollywood, they flip the story. All the companies negotiate with each union separately. And that that also further divided us. But that's changing this year. We have support from all those unions I named. And it's because everybody is feeling the squeeze. And it seems like emblematic, like you've mentioned, of what's going on across the country in other industries where you have the financialization of those industries yeah. and the gigification of the labor force. Talk a little bit. That's a word I've been hearing a lot that's been coined, the gigification of, of the labor force, which is probably the thing that you mentioned has unified us with all these other unions. Yes. Basically, what has happened in this gig economy is now coming to writers. Writers used to be able to have a career. They used to be able to, even though built into working as a writer is a lack of security, is a going from job to job. The fact is there was the union helped protect writers to allow them to ride out the periods where they weren't working. Now, because wages have been so squeezed and because the companies are really looking to say to us, we don't care about writers having what we call term employment employment over a, a period of time that allows for building a career and staying a writer. We're looking at, at a future that if we don't do something, writers will work a day here, a day there. They've proposed for writers who work in comedy variety, like the late night shows, a day rate that we've never had a day rate. Like there was always a minimum of at least a week's work. And we're seeing that 
writers are working for limited amounts of time, not enough money to ride out their year. And then they're always looking for the next job. They always have to be just to make ends meet. I mean, we're not, we're not talking, there is a sort of a, a misunderstanding that somehow all writers are living a successful, comfortable life. And that used to be the truth of, of being a writer in Hollywood. If you had any kind of career, you, you did actually get to live a comfortable life. That's not true anymore. And yet our, the companies we work for are making all these billions of profits. You know, David, I read in the New York Times that these companies are paying huge sums to produce these films. Yep. Apple, Sony, Netflix, they're all big companies and have a lot of money. But where's all this money going to? Well, that's the thing. I mean, they're competing with each other and they're putting money in, you know, for big name actors, for expensive locations, for promotion of it. And the section of that, the section, at, you know, so show budgets have increased by 50% in, I think, the last five years. And yet the amount of money spent on the writers has, is the same or shrinking. And so that they're putting it into the product and then into the promotion of that product, but they're not willing to pay the people who write that product a living wage. And so they're absolutely willing to spend the money. It's just they're not going to they're not going to do anything to increase the money for those writers. One of the things that I was brought up short with when I went to one of the first informational meetings a few months ago was that pointed out that 20 years ago, the entertainment industry was a five billion dollar business. And now it's a 29 to 30 billion dollar right. business. And at our share of it, has been reduced. Talk about that. Well, I mean, so again, as I mentioned, show budgets have increased that the profits of these companies have just gotten wildly outsized from, from previous years. And yet writers are making 24% less if you take inflation into account than, than they did 10 years ago. And so the idea that writers are making, we have a contract that lays out minimums for us. And the minimum was supposed to be a floor. And now it's a ceiling. 50% of our members work at the minimum. That was never the intention of our contract. The, the, the intention of the contract was to make sure that the companies couldn't fully exploit us. Now they're saying everybody's going to make this minimum and it's going to get that section of the population is going to grow. The writers who who actually run television shows. These are our, our in many cases, our most experienced members who've worked in television for some length of time. A quarter of them are working for minimum. And they're, they're running these shows that really do lead to enormous profit for these companies. So you're sort of seeing an oppression, a labor oppression of writers, of you want to be a writer, you're going to just barely make enough money, maybe not enough money to survive, you, you might actually have to get a second job. And again, that idea that there used to be a path to success in, in Hollywood as a writer, and they are taking away that path to success. David, before we get into what the union is demanding in their negotiations, yeah. who is this guy who's making $250 million? What's his name? What company does he run? And how does he get away with one of the highest paid executives in American history. Well, I mean, I, I think you're talking about David Zaslav at Warner Brothers, who was actually head of Discovery, and they, they merged those companies. And I think that the way he gets away with it is by overseeing this merger of these two companies and then pleasing Wall Street. Wall Street now rates that stock as a very good stock. 
And so the shareholders there reward this man who has raised their stock price and shown profit growth with an outsized reward that literally could pay every writer under our contract for three years. So what that ignores, and this is where it's so strange and kind of through the looking glass is the purpose of these companies is to make product, is to make television shows and movies. And yet over at that company, and not to just single him out, because I think it's happening a lot of places, that isn't their goal in the short term. It's actually making cuts in labor and taking write-offs of movies rather than releasing them. And it's a very kind of antithetical to what the purpose of these companies is supposed to be, which is to make product that people watch. And the fact that he's using that company to just raise a stock price, well, for what? What's the future of that? And that's a that's a stock quarter to stock quarter mentality that loses sight of the point of the company. And it's very, very upsetting. It's very upsetting because I work in a community that is filled with enormously talented, hardworking, creative people who made a compact with these companies to reach an audience, to be storytellers and participate in that. And, and the companies used to see great profit in that, and they still do. There's a reason they're negotiating with us and not just, or there's a reason they did negotiate with us. And the reason that our strike does have power is because America and the world relies on this product that we create. Those stories that we create are a connection, our way for people to connect. And we're, because of this corporatization, some people are losing sight of that. And hopefully this strike will bring them back. Well, Ralph, I would say we see this, we've talked about this on this program when we've talked about Boeing, we've talked about General Electric, where these formerly great engineering companies no longer, their first priority is not making stuff anymore. It's just bumping up their stock price any way they can. So that's why I think this strike and this whole labor issue is emblematic of what is going on across all industries in America. David, what are the union demands that they've brought to the negotiating table? So all of our demands are about compensation. They're all about making sure that if you're a television writer, you'll be employed for a certain amount of time, that if you're a television writer who creates a television show, you won't have to do it by yourself, that, that there will be other writers hired to help you do that, that if you're a feature writer, a writer, a writer of movies, that if you're movie is going to just be on the streaming service as opposed to being in a theater, that you're going to be properly compensated for that. You're not going to have to take that on a discount. If you're a comedy variety writer and you're writing a show in the streaming world, that you're going to have the protections of the minimums and the pension and health contributions that all the other writers in the union have. Currently, they don't have that protection. All of our demands really sort of fall under this just broad category of pay us enough so that we can live. Don't exploit us. You need to properly pay us. It's all about compensation across the board. And there are a lot of very specific demands, speaking about specific working conditions that we're trying to address. And does this mean annual salaries and bonuses or you pay piecework? This is just the piecework. This is just our weekly contracts are, you know, that so that there's a, a duration, like a writer 
you know, many writers are now getting a job for 10 weeks in a room working out, let's say, a story for episodes of a television show. We we're saying it's got to be longer than that because we're also historically in the guild. There's been sort of a almost a training program of writers who learn the production of a show because they're working long enough on that show to gain experience. And now the writing of the show has been separated from production. So many writers aren't getting that experience. And so we're going to be losing a workforce, a, a talented workforce that the company's benefited from. Like that's that's the crazy thing about what we're fighting for. They benefited from a system that they're now destroying. We created hit movies and TV shows because writers were able to stay writers because they could learn from other writers. And in a weird way, we were trying to save them from themselves, that the things we're asking for in this contract benefit them in the long term. And again, our asks are not in any way things they can't afford. It's literally our opening offer, our, our opening proposals were worth less than 2% of their all of their profits. And obviously, with an opening proposal, we understand that's just the beginning of a negotiation. But they didn't even want to they didn't want to agree to that. So this is pretty shocking. Do you say two percent? Less than two percent of their profit. It's almost like the tomato grower gets less than five cents out of the dollar tomato that consumers pay for in the supermarket. Now, if some major actors and actresses supported you, like Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, have they come to your support? We are getting a lot of support from actors in our union, in SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. So we're getting a lot of support from those actors. They show up to the pick the lines. I don't know those specific ones that you named. I don't know, but there have been others who've spoken out in support, and we obviously very much appreciate that. If a George Clooney speaks out, you're going to get more coverage. That's why I asked the question. You know, we're the Writers Guild. We reach out to everybody, but my concern is my members and making sure that my most high-profile members stand with us, and they do. We have plenty of, of well-known writers in our union, and they have stood up and are standing with us. George R. R. Martin, I just had a phone conversation with him yesterday, has been writing great blog posts as, a, as an example of a very well-known writer who's standing with his union. And Ralph, uh, 15 years ago, that would, the actors were with us. And when we were on the picket lines, when an actor showed up at a picket line, then the cameras would show up. And it was a big part of the, a lot of the positive PR we got because right. nobody was showing up with a camera at Les Moonves' house to talk to him. So Let's yeah. go a little deeper on this. Probably the highest paid screenwriter today is Sorkin. Is he supporting you? You know, Aaron is a is a great union member. I haven't talked to him directly, but but Aaron is a great member of this Writers Guild. And a, I haven't talked to him specifically, but and I would let him speak for himself. But historically, Aaron's been a great, great union member, great supporter of the Guild. Where are people like Steve Spielberg in this kind of controversy? You know, again, Spielberg, great Guild member during, you know, he supported us during the agency campaign that Steve mentioned at the top of the show. Again, I haven't, most of my work in this moment has been over the last week is making sure that our picket lines are manned, making sure that people are getting out there and showing the town that we're serious about this fight. And as this fight goes on, we will be bringing whatever big name members we can 
to show support because in a fight like this, you need to make sure that people feel that energy. And right now, this energy is out on those picket lines and writers showing up to them. Are you asking for improved grievance procedures? I have to say that that that's always a part of our of our our negotiation is making sure that we do have access to resolve and engagement for the companies. But for us at this moment, the main focus of this negotiation is compensation and also the threat of artificial intelligence, that we make sure that we carve out that a writer, the first writer on a project has to be a human being, which is kind of a crazy thing that we have to worry about. But it's there, it's there and it's in there. And it's part, again, of that overall ask. Spell that out for a minute. You're basically saying that the robots are coming. <laughs> it's inconceivable to an outsider that they could come close to the kind of creativity of a, of a human writer. Well, they, the way they do it is by using the creativity of the human writer. The way I understand AI is that it does something where it, it'll scrape. It's, the term is scraping product screenplays and other writing and putting it into, their, into its central processing and able to imitate. You're imitating the writing craft, but you're right. It's, not, it's never really fully capturing the full creativity. But the scary thing about it is it doesn't have to. If a company decides they want to use AI as a starting place to come up with a story or a screenplay, they can use something that they can use that program to vomit out something that isn't very good. But then they give it to a writer to rewrite. And that writer is not getting paid what he, she, or they would have gotten paid to create something original. And that's very scary. That's very, very scary because I, I could see that happening shortly. Companies really looking to save money by just using this AI to create something. And then suddenly the writer isn't the first person hired. And if they're not the first person hired, they may not get credit. They may not see any of the, the residuals from that work and they won't be as well paid. And that's something we've got to put guardrails. I see. I look forward to a movie where the AI robots automate the bosses. They should be much more easily <laughs> yeah. automated than the creative scriptwriters, right, Steve? Yeah, I think that especially all these mid-level executives have more to fear from AI than we do. So, Can Ralph, you give Ralph, the guild just, contact just, number before you leave for people yeah, just, who want to know just, more about it? You could go to the website, the WGA.org, and there's a lot of information on there. That's the best way to contact, and you can contact the Guild through that website. We've been speaking with David Goodman, former president of the Writers Guild and co-chair of the negotiating committee at the present time. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. Good luck to you. Thank you. We've been speaking with David Goodman, former president of the Writers Guild of America West and co-chair of the negotiating committee during the writer strike, the ongoing writer strike, we will link to the WGA's work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to get an update on the Anthropology Library and its occupation from guests we've had on before, Sandra Osagoda and Jesus Gutierrez. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, 
Russell Mokyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Report of Morning Minute for Friday, May 12, 2023. I'm Russell Mokyber. More than 300 minors, including two 10-year-olds who were unpaid, were found to be working in violation of federal labor laws at McDonald's franchise restaurants across Kentucky and other states. That's according to a report from CNBC. The department's Wage and Hour Division determined three separate franchises operating 62 McDonald's locations across Indiana, Kentucky, Maryland and Ohio violated federal labor laws by employing 305 children to work more than the legally permitted hours, as well as perform tasks illegal for young workers. Of the 62 restaurants, 45 were in Kentucky. These reports are unacceptable, deeply troubling, and run afoul of the high expectations we have for the entire McDonald's brand, Tiffany Boyd, Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer of McDonald's, said. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Hannah Feldman, and Ralph Nader. Hey, from the picket line to the occupation of the Anthropology Library at UC Berkeley, let's get an update on that situation. David? Sandra Osegura and Jesus Gutierrez are graduate students in the Anthropology Department at the University of California, Berkeley, where stakeholders, including students and faculty, have organized to demand that the Anthropology Library be protected and fully supported by the university. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Sandra Osegura and Jesus Gutierrez. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having us again here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Welcome, indeed. In fact, it's more than protection. They're trying to keep the library open, which the administration wants to close to save a few bucks while they pour hundreds of millions of dollars in a nearby giant building dedicated to artificial intelligence. Before we get underway, I just came across the article in the Chronicle of Higher Education by a former graduate student in the Department of Anthropology at Berkeley, Caitlin Zaloom, May 4th. And here's what she says about what you're doing. Here's what she said, quote, This is no local fight. Two visions of the university are clashing. One vaunts technical mastery and promotes corporate will. The other supports voices from people and places regularly excluded from universities and often turns critical attention toward industry and academe itself. There is no question that the first vision, tied to both big business and donors, now dominates higher education. You can see it on every campus in the country. But at Berkeley, one of the nation's flagship public universities, it is a particularly ugly sight, end quote. And then she makes a personal comment, quote, the library is a place where students do this together. I know because I spend hours every week at the tables and among the stacks as a graduate student in Berkeley's anthropology department. Over those tables, students gathered books and articles written by anthropologists and mastered the history of their field, end quote. And since we spoke, Yosis and Sandra, the New York Times had a front page article with a photograph on the front page and four photographs on the jump page describing the resistance by the students, the sit-in, the arguments they use, and the stubbornness of the administration, which is trying to overwhelm the unanimous opposition against closing this specialized library by the faculty and the students. So that's where we are. So tell us, Sandra or Yesis, 
where you are now and how many students you have occupying this wonderful library and what your plans are. Yes, well, thank you so much for, again, for having us here. And as you read Caitlin Saloum's article, I want to highlight that she touches in really what we're trying to do here. We truly disagree with the vision that the administration has for this university. And we believe that it can be different, that this can truly be a public university for students, underrepresented minorities, but also for the public, where public can come here, especially to our library, and be curious, collect knowledge, and have a refugee where they can find themselves in the in the shelves, in the stacks. So that for us has been really important, and I'm very happy that Caitlin Saloum could summarize that vision that we have for our university and for our department, and especially for our library. About the occupation, Jesus, you want to tell us more about the occupation? Uh, sure thing. You know, I think what's been really interesting to us is how we began this occupation with about a group of 25 to 30 people who were willing to risk trespassing charges, who were willing to put a lot of things on the line for the sake of a library. And I think that that was curious for a lot of media outlets. I think a lot of people, you know, as you probably saw the New York Times story, the sort of framing and spin was around this question of AI and the digital age. And I actually, you know, what we expected that the sort of energy and the momentum and the passion that the New York Times article captured would sort of wane as the days went on. But now we are on night, what is it today, day 20? Yeah, today's day 20. Today's day 20 of our occupation. And last night, we had about 20 people sleeping in that library. And, you know, and the day before that was the first time that our numbers dipped to 15. So it's been really amazing, like just seeing new supporters come in through those doors of the library every single day. I think people are realizing that they can take control over their education into their own hands at a time when the UC Berkeley administration, with its increasingly corporate posture, really refuses to do so, really refuses to have the right priorities. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that this occupation is happening at the same time as Oakland Unified School District teachers are on strike. The things that Oakland School District is telling their teachers who are on strike are more or less the same things that the UC Berkeley administration is telling us. There simply is no money for the things that matter. Well, there's plenty of money for the football program. They pay the coach at Berkeley three to four million dollars a year, which is enough to support the anthropology library for many years. And listeners should know that this is one of the great anthropology libraries in the world. We're talking about over a hundred year history here. And people come to use the library who are not students because it's a public university and a library is open to people in the San Francisco area or anybody who wants to come and use the facilities. I know you're getting reaction from all over the country, not just from Berkeley graduates, but you're getting reaction people who might be saying, you know, they're they're trying to do this to us in Vermont. They're trying to do this to us in Florida. Well, Florida is getting headlines because the governor, DeSantis, is engaged in a censorship of textbooks and book banning. But the ultimate book banning is closing a library, shipping all these books to a, a remote warehouse in Richmond, California. Listeners should know that we are supporting this wonderful effort 
which I hope will continue to grow with faculty and students, not just in anthropology department, but other departments where specialized libraries are being closed down. We're supporting it. And just recently, there was a demonstration in front of the building on Scott Circle, owned by the University of California, Berkeley, for students who spend a semester as interns in Washington, D.C. I've spoken numerous times to the students in their lecture hall on the first floor. And so now people in Washington are understanding what's going on. I understand you got a comment by a major donor who said, oh, they want to save this amount of money? Well, I think I'll cut my contribution annually by a couple hundred thousand dollars. So the chancellor, Chris, and whoever's behind this are going to have to worry about declines in donations to the university. They're going to have to worry about student applications, who students who decide, do they really want to go to a corporatized university, a destruction of the public traditions of the university? So I want to ask you, because this interview is being transmitted over KPFA in Berkeley, so people in the Bay Area are listening to it, what kind of help would you like? You're sitting in, this is a 24-hour dedication, it's going to go on. What kind of help from the community would you like in terms of help in kind, help in public support, contributions to provide food? What would you like from the Bay Area? From the Bay Area, we are always happy to encounter people that come into the library and just give us words of support. That is very encouraging. What we are requesting right now is that if someone wants to donate or lend us some air mattresses or sleeping bags, that would be really helpful because we have a lot of students that join us and sometimes they are not prepared to sleep on the floors. So that could be one way of helping us. We are right now trying to reach out to restaurants and other businesses that could sponsor us to serve meals. We usually have among 20 people that we have to supply dinner for. And that is one of our main challenges and where our money is being spent on also on our breakfast. So that could be of help. And we are also receiving monetary donations through our fundraising campaign in givebutter.com slash save library. Well, that's very good. And there's always serendipity. There's always people who know how to get their calls returned from the regents who control the corporation. They know how to get their calls returned from the administration just because of their stature, their influence, Who knows what other ways that they'll come up that you all have not yet anticipated. Now, one aspect of this has really troubled me, and that is the law school. Imagine if the administration said, oh, the law school has a specialized library. We're going to shut it down. They wouldn't dare do that. Those graduates go into corporate law firms. There's a lot of money and power involved. But, you know, they can pick on the anthropology department, which attracts a good number of Hispanic Americans, Latinos, African Americans, Asian Americans, people who are asking questions that start with why, not how. How can we get more advances in AI? Why? Why corporate power? Why so much poverty in the richest land? Why are cultural traditions being commercialized by a corporate culture? And the administration which is basically a corporatist administration at Berkeley, doesn't like academic exercises asking the word why. Now, the law school rebuffed you. 
I understand, to the extent that you contacted some people, some students there, and some faculty, and they said they weren't interested in helping you. I think that this struggle is going to lead to some capricious activities by the administration. They're inebriated with their own power. I don't think they remember the free speech movement back in the 1960s led by Mario Savio. They think they can get their way, and they're digging in their heels. I think there should be a temporary restraining order filed in the court in Berkeley to open up the equitable arguments here. That's what a temporary restraining order can do. It can go into the law of equity and not be overly technical and move to an arena that the administration is not in control of. So I'm going to keep trying to get someone at the law school or some people to help you. But you see, this is what happens when they corporatize a law school and they decide who gets in and who doesn't. And they're not known law schools for letting in citizen advocates at a young age. You don't apply to law school on your vitae and say that you have organized X demonstrations and led Y marches and basically challenged the corporate order and the corporate power. So keep at it with the law schools. What else would you like to tell us about what you are doing? The summer is coming. Administrations often wait students until they leave and then they move in. But this is not going to happen, correct? We are aiming for that not to happen to us. We are planning to stay into the summer until we get an answer and we get our library. Something that we are trying and we want to denounce in this space is that we've been outside trying to hold accountable the actors that are cutting the budgets for libraries. And this is Jeffrey Mackey Mason, the head librarian of the university, Benjamin Hermelin, the vice provost of this university, Berkeley, and the chancellor, Carol Crest. And we've been out there. We're looking for them. We're trying to get an answer. We found Jeffrey Mackey Mason and his response, and we have it on tape, is that anthropology is not a priority of his and that his priority has shifted and he is aiming to reduce the library system in this university. We also have him on tape saying that if we think that he cannot do his job, that maybe he should resign. Like he said those words and the reality is that he's someone that should be fighting alongside us to get the funding that we need to keep libraries open at UC Berkeley. So right now we are coming for them and trying to hold them accountable, but they keep running away from us. That's why Caitlin Zaloom in the Chronicle of Higher Education titled her article, quote, the fight over Berkeley Library is a fight for the future of higher education. Yes, what would you like to say? I think that it has been really inspiring to see our occupation space make our anthropology library into the space of encounter and transformation that it is supposed to be. What I mean by that is that, you know, the administration and the press to some degree initially portrayed us as, you know, passively occupying, right? Just sleeping and reading in this space. But the reality on the ground has been that the library has become an organizing space. Those of us who are occupying also gather. And then from there, we fan out and make plans to go talk to our fellow students make plans to go confront these core decision makers and hold them accountable for what they are doing to our education, what they are doing to these essential public resources. 
I think that we, the way that every day our movement grows stronger and students wake up to the fact that Carol Christ, Ben Hermelin, and Jeff Mackey Mason are enemies of public education. These are the administrators. These are the top administrators. Yes. Yes. This is an inspiring sight to see. It's inspiring to see students sort of taking ownership over their education and really not being afraid to stand up for priorities in a public university that they feel are the right ones. Former Governor Jerry Brown is supporting you. He taught a course at the Department of Anthropology once. How's the faculty doing on this? The faculty, I think, you know, individual faculty members each have different attitudes and postures, but not only about what they will hope to see from the space, but also what they believe is achievable. I think, though, there is a general climate around faculty and anthropology graduate students that suggests that the occupation is really shifting what people believe, what many people believe is possible. And I think our coverage in the press, I think the growing numbers of students that are showing up to our demonstrations and pickets, I think all of these different things are symptoms of an underlying movement for the future of public education. I understand that Chancellor Christ met with the faculty, tried to get them to agree to push you out, and the faculty said, we will not betray our students. I hope they hold to that standard. Yes, that is exactly where I was going to bring up that the faculty has been offered the space to make it into a reading room and in exchange to ask us to leave. And I think that that was something that when it was brought up to them was like, well, the occupation already won this for the department, the space, because the space was never truly promised to us. We had to make a bid as a department. And that was too complicated. We weren't prioritizing that bid. So they wanted to frame it as a symbolic win of the occupation. However, us in the occupation, we are not here for, we're not chasing symbolic wins. We want a fully functional library because that is what matters to us. And the overwhelming desire of the department, faculty and grad students is to keep a library open. And what we know about what happened in that meeting is that the majority of the faculty there spoke up and clearly said, we're not betraying our students and we're standing with them. And for that, we are incredibly grateful because even though we are willing to continue on our own, having that support means a lot to us. Imagine they want a reading room. The administration wants a reading room without the books and the materials and the documentary history of anthropology. That goes to a warehouse in Richmond, California. Tell me this, are graduates of the Department of Anthropology at Berkeley, who are now all over the country, contacting you? Are graduates of the University of California generally contacting you? Yes. I would urge them, listening to this program, to do so. And if they do, what's the best way to contact you? Well, they can always find us on Instagram. Our Instagram is at save the UCB Anthro Library. And if not, they can reach us via email. My email is oss at berkeley.edu. And Jesus, you want to share your email? Um, my email is my first name dot last name at berkeley.edu. J-E-S-U-S. First name, last name, G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z. And uh, what about the student newspaper? Uh, are they rising to the occasion? The Daily Cal? I would say that they, they there has been, there was some coverage in the first week, but I think in general, you know, I haven't, seen that many articles in recent days. Maybe that could just be me focusing on other things, but. Yes, and Sandra, give us the 
timeline here. When is the university graduation date? When are the students leaving campus? Is there a summer school where students take courses? What's the scene? So from what I understand, commencement is next week on Tuesday. And I think, but a lot of our undergraduates have already started leaving campus because this week is finals week. That said, there are a lot of, even though people are starting to sort of dissipate for the summer, we've gotten a lot of expressions of interest from people who have told us, okay, now that I'm done with exams, I can come start sitting in with you guys. Or it's powerful stuff to see people just coming out and people who are just learning about this telling us, you know, like, oh, if I had known about this, I wouldn't have accepted this or that internship. So I could stay here for the summer with you guys. (laughs) So it's been really exciting to see how passionate students are, even if, you know, the summer is obviously going to shake things up a bit. And yeah, you know, I think all eyes right now are on Chancellor Carol Christ. In 1999, she sent in police to mistreat and choke protesters standing up in defense of the Ethnic Studies Department here at UC Berkeley. After, I think, you know, right now what we are doing is not so different from what those students were doing 24, 25 years ago. So yeah, it's your move, Chancellor. If there are any pro bono lawyers out there in the Bay Area willing to lend these valiant students a hand, they can benefit from legal advice. All I say is shame on the law school at University of California, Berkeley. The Lawyers Guild student chapter didn't even bother to respond to your request for help. I'll try to make some calls to some professors I know, but they've got their own arena. They've got their own protected legal library. They've got their own corporate recruiters that come and interview. So it's not surprising that they don't see the higher education dimension and what's at stake here, not just for the Department of Anthropology, but for public education at the university level in general. Steve, David, Shahana? Let's just defer to Hannah here because she's a graduate of the Anthropology Department at Berkeley. So go ahead, Hannah. Thank you. It's great to see you taking the university's advice and using the library as a reading room 24-7. It's great collaboration. I'm curious if you've seen a shift since the New York Times article came out in who's giving you attention. I think people who would have been sympathetic with the cause to begin with would be the people who care about the actual you know, driving motivations that you have, but more mainstream normie people who don't really care as much about the like core values of like education and social sciences and humanities. Are there people who responded because of the sort of mainstream New York Times framing that is new? Yes. So on one hand, we have received a lot of support and in the form of donations and messages from researchers. Many researchers in STEM have reached out to us. Also other scholars in other social sciences and humanities, they are being present. But it's very interesting because now we have people coming into the library and they are people that read the New York Times article three blocks away from here and they were in their morning walk and they came into the library. We also had a couple of tourists from Scotland, I think, and they entered the library, they read it in the New York Times and they wanted to see what's what was happening. So we have had a lot of people just coming into the space after that article and bringing cookies or brownies or coming with a lot of words of support. And that means a lot to us. It's been really meaningful. That's so great to hear. 
if the people in charge don't care about the students or the mission, maybe they'll care about their own reputation and the public shaming by fellow corporatists. Well, we're out of time, but I want to give you, Sandra, and Yesis a last opportunity to convey to the audience something that we may not have covered. I just think that one of the most important things that our listeners can and should take away of what is happening on the ground is that this is a broad coalition of people fighting for a university, fighting over the soul of the university, essentially, fighting over the priorities and the future of higher education. I think, you know, initially the news coverage really made it focus things on anthropology and the anthropology department and the anthropology library. And, you know, rightfully so to us, this is an anthropological fight. But at the same time, a lot of the folks who are risking something, putting things on the line, staying the night with us night after night are people from the community, our graduate students and faculty from all kinds of other disciplines. We want to really convey to the world just how much bigger than just anthropology and social science this fight is. For many people, this is a continuation of the conversation started during the strike in the fall. And it's a conversation that's fundamentally about, you know, whose university is this? I think time and history will tell, but I think we occupiers have a very particular answer to that. And the ball is in the administration's court. Well, we've been talking with Jesus Guitares and Sandra Oseguera, two of the leaders of the resistance to closing the great anthropological library at the Department of Anthropology, University of California, Berkeley. And once more, could either one of you give the contact number very slowly so people listening to this program can contribute their values, their ideas, their suggestions, their support. At stake here is whether a public university is going to become a trade school for corporations or it's going to provide ample space and support for the humanities and social sciences, without which this country will turn into a corporate serfdom. It's on its way in that direction already. Please, can you give the contact numbers once more if you want to give any telephone numbers too? Listeners and supporters should feel free to call us at 510-561-4804 or text. Say that once more. They may call or text at 510-561-4804. And your email. The email is oss at berkeley.edu. Well, thank you, both of you, and thank your fellow students and your faculty and all the people in Berkeley who are supporting you. This is going to be a struggle backed by stamina and broader support from all over the country, and it will be continued. We'll have you on again to report developments. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Sandra Osagara and Jesus Gutierrez. We will link to Save UC Libraries at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Ralph, you wanted to address some feedback we've got on some recent shows. Well, we get a lot of interesting feedback, but this time we got two really wonderful letters, very thoughtful letters. The first one was by a, a lawyer, Eric Thurson, and he was commenting on Shane Inspector's program. And he made some very important points, pointing out the nuances and what it takes to deal with medical malpractice cases that involve the elderly and not all that much financial damages because the elderly retired and they can't 
argue wage loss. And he made a lot of other statements. It's so valuable, we're going to send it to Shane Inspector. But we want you to read it, and it'll be up on our RalphNaderRadioHour.com. The second one was quite remarkable. It was by a, a woman who had a career in sports. She started in Lebanon, and she describes herself as a 67-year-old woman who was very active in sports, and she was upset that we didn't talk about the role of female athletes in our program, which focused on baseball, and all the hurdles that women have had to overcome and girls have had to overcome to get equal opportunity and equal treatment. Of course, you know, we have been on top of Title IX for decades because one of our colleagues, Arthur Bryant, was one of the chief, if not the chief, litigator to enforce it on college and university campuses. She writes this long letter, and it is full of information. I read it twice. A lot of it is her own experiences, and she ends up by saying, quote, I urge you to pay attention and not ignore 52% of the world's population. And we certainly will be paying attention to that in the future. But I want to thank you. Randa Baramke wrote that letter. And those who are interested in this subject can read it in its entirety on RalphNaderRadioR.com. Thank you both for sending letters that I know took quite some time to compose. I want to thank our guests again, David Goodman, Sandra Osogera, and Jesus Gutierrez. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, tell your local radio TV stations to report some victories once in a while where the citizens rise up and drive back the forces of greed and exploitation. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. Unfortunately, Francesco DeSantis is under the weather this week, so we have no in case you haven't heard. We have no extras either. However, please check out the two thoughtful letters Ralph referred to from listeners at the end of the program. They can be found on this week's program page. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stay.